The chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one, he said. Yes, the chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one. Josephine. How are oh, you? I love it. All sung. <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to ask you how you are. That's how you are. How are you? Yeah, good. There's not a lot else. My life is very boring still, I'm afraid. Oh, no. You got a nice dress on. Thank you. It is nice. It's new. I love the pattern. It's got lots of flowers on it. Yeah. Most yeah. things you wear have flowers on it. It's true. Well, it's because, um, you know, uh, Josephine and I love this brand called Bohemian Traders. Particularly me, I wear them a lot. That's all you wear? Pretty much. And uh, this is from them. And they have lots of designs with flowers on them. Yes, they love flowers. Flowers are very bohemian. Yes. Um, so, welcome everyone to my favourite musical. It's a podcast. Of course it's a podcast. You're listening to a podcast <laughs> Through from a podcast, a podcast app. app. Idiot. Or maybe they're on Spotify. Yeah, but they still went into podcasts, right? No, I'm just giving them the benefit of the doubt. So this podcast is about musicals. And um, uh, you're Josephine. Yes, you're Ruth. And each week we tell each other about one of our favourite shows. Yeah. And this is episode 27. How, are you finding that we're getting into the stage of feeling like meh about the musicals? No. Oh, you still love them? Yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, today's musical I'm like, Fucking pumped about. Yeah. I've been listening to it all week, like just fucking loving my life. Yeah. Excellent choices. Happy with my choices. I said this to Josephine before, but like before we started recording, but this is the most I've had to research for a show. Oh, yeah. Like it, there was just so much to, to look at for Do me. Do you think, because obviously they know what musicals we're talking about. Do you think they already know which one you're talking about? Yeah, I think because also you've like hinted that you're going to do your musical in several previous episodes. Yes. I think I've more than hinted. I think yeah. I said I would. I think you were like, I'm doing that soon. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly how I sound. Thank you, yeah, Ruth. that's okay. I do a, a perfect Josephine impression. Yeah, whatever. Uh, so we've got a format and I will be driving the format because Ruth likes to fuck around with shit. Jo- we have a list of things that we do in order and if I change the order, Josephine gets. Why would you want to though? You are not a chaotic quite person. Quite upset. So I don't, I don't understand. It's, it's not even. Have, in, it's not even part of your I personality. I have them written down in a different order to you. Okay, I'm going to message you the order, okay. the correct order. I'm sorry. Ruth, do you have any apologies for the listeners? Well, it's sort of an apology and sort of an omission. Oh, okay. So last week, um, for those who may not have listened, I covered the musical Starlight Express. <laughs> Uh, which do we have to talk about that piece of yes, shit again? We will continue to talk about Starlight oh, Express God. until the end of time. Um, and I forgot to mention like one of the most geniusly bad songs that's in the show, yeah. which is just a song called Freight is Great. Well, the song I think is just called Freight, but they just repeat the words Freight is Great again and again and again. Is and it I ironic? just was like, how? No, no, not ironic. Um, how could I have missed mentioning this song? That's a big apology. So I wanted to That's let everyone know that that you. song exists in the world. Freight. The song is just called Freight. Yeah. Oh, I And they see. say the words freight is great again and again. I don't like that. You don't like the whole show. True. So that's not really new. 
Thank you for apologising. The world was waiting for that apology. Yeah, I agree. I don't have any apologies. Oh, that's good. Yeah, the song's just called Freight. I just looked <laughs> so it up just to make sure. <laughs> the musical is so weird, man. All right, our next segment is called Spotlight. It's where we like to highlight um, an artist of colour or a theatre company is doing great work in the space of ethnic minorities or LGBTQ or um, we would like to amplify voices that otherwise are not being amplified. Yeah. Ruth, do you have a spotlight for I us do. Today? Mine is an update to one of your previous spotlights. Excellent. I love it. A sequel. A sequel. So some time ago Josephine did a spotlight on the research done by the Asian American Performers Action Coalition. I did indeed. And um, that was, I think, the most recent one when Josephine talked about it was the 2015-2016 report had been yes. released. So as of just a few weeks ago, the 2017-2018 report has been oh, released. Oh, fantastic. So um, what did we learn? That report found that. So it's partly about like the breakdown of cast, but they've also looked at a few other things this time as well. Mm-hmm. So in terms of cast um, ethnicity breakdowns, white actors were cast, and this is um, New York in general, so it includes Broadway and off-Broadway. Yep. Um, white actors were cast 61.5% of the time mm. versus 23.2% for black actors, 6.9% for Asian-American actors, 6.1% for Latinx actors, 2% for MENA, which is uh, Middle East and North African yep. actors, and 0.2% for Indigenous actors. 0.2. Yeah, fucking ridiculous. Um, this is also sad sort of considering that the 2017-2018 season was the scene where the bands visit a show set in the Middle East uh, oh. one Best Musical at the Tony Awards and Once on This Island, which featured a majority black cast, won Best Revival of a Musical. Shit. So, in fact, the numbers were actually skewed higher than, than they, they would otherwise have been. Have been. Um, so the study also included economic demographics for the first time um, with some troubling findings such as that for every $1 a BIPOC actor makes in NYC, their white counterparts counterparts earn a dollar seventy. Mm. Um, this is mostly due to BIPOC performers being – so like they're much more likely to be hired for an off-Broadway show than they are for a Broadway show. Yeah. Um, and the pay rate obviously is much lower on off-Broadway shows um, – than Broadway shows, so mm. that's really where that's come from. Like, and also the worst offender was Roundabout Theatre Company. For every one dollar the Roundabout spent on BIPOC actors, they spent an estimated six dollars and nine cents on white actors. What the fuck? Yeah, oh, ridiculous. Geez. Yeah, and again, I'm I am guessing that's because so they have I think two off Broadway theaters and a Broadway theater. Yeah, and that would be like. Oh, we'll hire people of colour for our off-Broadway shows but not for our Broadway shows kind of thing. My God. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, there was a five-point gain in representation compared to the previous, um, yeah. like several Report, previous studies, yeah. but obviously still a long way to go. Um, and then there's just lots more information at the actual study, which I will put a link to. Yeah, they're doing great work. Yeah. Because that, what I didn't realise about data gathering, of course, me being a naive newborn baby, is this actually it takes a long time to gather yeah. that sort of very specific data. Exactly. And like I mentioned when I first spoke about them, there is not really a system in place. Nope. For nope. collecting that. It's not like the Broadway League, does it? No. No, no, no. <laughs> but I think as you mentioned, I think we definitely have talked about before, they do do it on their audiences. Oh, yeah. They know exactly who's watching Exactly. Just not who's in the shows. Exactly. Like the shows. Yeah. yeah. Jeez, that's shit. Mm. Okay. My spotlight today, mm. I want to talk about an Australian theatre company. Okay. I'm going to talk about Act Now Theatre, which is a South Australian theatre company that 
creates issues-based theatre focused on social justice issues. Oh, cool. I didn't actually know about ACT Now no. at all and they, they've won quite a few awards um, on a state level so they haven't yet sort of branched outside of South Australia but yeah. they're really renowned within the state um, for their work. So yeah. they've been hailed as, quote, one of the most innovative, inclusive and dynamic com- companies in Australia. Uh, so the Act Now Theatre's projects focus on communities of LGBTIQ+, um, First Nations Australians and culturally and linguistically diverse communities, including a number of programs in schools or for young people. So as well as having like a, it's an actual theatre company that produces theatre for an audience, they also travel to schools and to like youth programs as well. Yeah. So you know you know when we're at school and you have like those actors who show up at school? Yeah. They do that like as well as... theatre education. That's right. Yeah. So they, they have... The, like they have an arm. A lot of theatre companies in New South Wales do that as well, to be fair. But, yeah. yes, so they, they have quite a reach. Um, I think that's really important, it's that so work important. as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So ACT now have quite a number of notable works, including Responding to Racism, uh, which is this interactive theatrical experience. It uses elements of Boal's Forum Theatre. If you know anything about the work of Augusto Boal, um, it's all about sort of involving the audience um, and making the audience become part of the, of yeah. the performance. Um, so, yeah, they're doing really great work and you should check them out. I'm going to link to their website because, awesome. they're, yeah, they're really at the front line in terms of theatre and, and educating the youth. Very cool. Yeah. What's next on our list? Okay, next we do a Theatre Explained. Okay. So what is today's theme? Today we're talking about a libretto. Oh, I like that word. Same. I actually realised I like any word with a double T, mm. which is lucky because my last name has a double T. Feels good in the mouth. Mm. <laughs> so libretto yeah. is Italian for booklet. Yeah, sexy. It sounds better as libretto than booklet. I agree. <laughs> um, there's not a lot to say really here. It's yeah. The text used in or intended for an extended musical work, mm. such as a musical or opera. Yeah. It's interesting because it's a word we probably bandy around a lot, like yeah. librettist and libretto, but it's quite a specific, like it's a book that has the script and the music and the lyrics yeah. of generally an opera, but it is now a term that's been adopted by musical theatre yeah. to also refer to musical theatre works. Yeah. And so the what... What people might be a little bit confused about is like what's the difference between the libretto of a text and the and the book of a musical yeah. kind of thing, which is that the libretto is all sort of spoken, it, like any words in it. So it includes the song lyrics. That's right. Whereas the book generally doesn't. doesn't the book is yeah, generally we'll just, just the dialogue. Song. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's really the biggest difference between the two. Yeah. Um. And, yeah, like it's also different from, say, like a synopsis or scenario of the plot yeah. because it does include all of the text. Yeah. Whereas they are obviously just a summary. <laughs> Often if you are performing a musical, you will get a copy of the libretto. Yeah. And that will be what you will work off and learn That's off. right. Yeah. 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 This has been Theatre Explained. That was a quick one. I love a quickie. And do we then do content recommendations? Yes, Ruth. Good girl. Can I start? Because I this is a groundbreaking day for me. Oh. I have no recommendations. Josephine. None. Can I tell you why? Okay. I am fresh out of fucking ideas, guys. <laughs> I'm drowning in a sea of my job. I it can some and I'm actually I feel dried up. Can someone out there please give me some recommendations? At the moment I'm watching suits. That's what I'm. That's how I'm living my life in the afternoon, well, afternoon, <laughs> evenings. Yeah, and just sleeping. That's it. Oh, can you tell me something good? I can. Yeah, 
I like, I mean, to be fair, Josephine's working a lot more than me at the moment. Yeah. But I like, I'm like, I've got to give two recommendations every week. Like it's no matter what, I well, have to. Because I was really freaking out about it all week. I was like, shit, what can I recommend? I was yeah. searching for things, but none of them were authentic because I hadn't actually interacted yeah, with them. Yeah. And then I was like, maybe you don't have anything yes. to say. So the first one of mine is, I'm get, so I'm going to link to a Twitter thread, but basically someone has taken a bunch of videos from TikTok and posted them in these, this Twitter thread. And it's really genius. And the good thing about it being a Twitter thread is that it just sort of link, like it does them in order so you can watch them. Is but, this the Sondheim one? No. No. Shut up me. Um, it's a musical one though, obviously. We're a musical theatre podcast. Um, so someone wrote like on TikTok, someone wrote like a 42-second musical about a relationship breaking up at a grocery store. Like that's the, they, they sing this like very like typical contemporary musical theatre song um, that's like they're ha- this couple having this breakup at a grocery store. So it's just one guy. But then, you know, TikTok has this duet feature where you take the video and you record yourself doing something with it. That's cool. And so this whole thread is like then a, this woman comes and she's pretended to be the girlfriend and turned it into a duet. And then there's a, a another person comes, the next video is the same thing, but they're the child, like it's mummy and daddy fighting and it becomes a trio. And then the next one I think is like a can of soup watching them fight at the grocery store. And they've each added like a, a, a level of the song, oh, wow. turns it into a quartet, turns it into a quintet. And I think it goes down to about seven people have done it. And it's really great. I it's actually have the really time clever. To be that creative, right? It's oh, so, so, and they've good. obviously written their harmonies to go with what's existing, and I love it's, people. it's really fantastic. That's awesome. Um, so that's one of them. The other one is actually like kind of on the same theme as my episode today because I was reminded of the existence of this video that, like, a lot of people will know. <laughs> Wait. No, you go, you say it and then I'll say a thing. Okay. So like a lot of people will know that this video exists, but if you don't know that this video exists, then I'm, I think I'm going to make your day. So what I'm linking to is the glorious. Can I guess? Yeah. Is it Cher doing my sad story? It is the glorious 12 minutes that is Cher recreating West Side Story and playing like all of the different characters. Fuck, it's fucking good. It's so good. It's so good. It's 12 minutes long. It's like goes it, through a bunch be, of the different songs. It should songs. be 45 minutes. It should be the whole it's so show. Good. It should be the whole yeah. show. That's Just how I want to consume all musicals all, in future. All the fucking characters in West Side Story and it's incredible. Do you think she's a better Tony or a better Maria? Tony. She's such a good Tony, right? <laughs> Anytime she's a Jet, I'm like, yes. Yes, so good. Um, it's <laughs> incredible. It was from a variety show that she did many decades ago. Yeah, she's really young in it. Yeah. Right? It's like the and 70s, I think. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's well worth a watch. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> so I'm linking to that as well. As soon as you said it's related to your yes. music, I was like, shit, I know this. <laughs> You're like, I know what this video is. The first time I showed Shane, Shane was like, what is this? <laughs> and then after a couple of minutes, he was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. It's just so batshit crazy that it works. And she's like in front of, it's just like a blue screen, yeah. right? <laughs> so it's good. It's just got like a, anyway, just watch it. Yeah. So good. So now what we normally do is we talk about a musical. <laughs> yes. Each. We Are do. you first this week? You're first this hey, week. Hey, that's lucky because, guys, I'm going to talk about the best musical of all time. It's not really. I, I love that you couldn't even finish that sentence without laughing. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Hear me out. I'm going to talk about Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. Excellent. Right? I don't know this show. What do you mean? I've never listened to it. What do you mean? I've never listened to this show. Get out. <laughs> 
I've I've heard War of the Worlds. What do you mean you've heard War of like the Worlds? Like the radio broadcast. So you've heard like Orson Welles. Correct. <laughs> speak the but novel not, of. But not this musical. So you haven't heard, you don't know this at all. At all. Fuck off. What's wrong with you? I don't know, but it's just never. I to, And like I, I own to it to on. your parents. I own it on DVD. What do you mean on DVD? Like, like one of the tours? I don't know. They have a DVD of it, I swear. <laughs> but you haven't watched it? No, I've never watched it. I used to just collect musical DVDs and not watch them. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Firstly, I just want to say that it is a musical and I'm not here to listen to your bullshit about it not being a musical. So tell me why people wouldn't think it's a musical. Because it is, it's rarely staged and when it is okay. staged, it's staged as more of a moved concert. Okay. However, I believe that a musical is uh, a work of theatre yeah. that includes music, acting, theatrical elements, and where the songs progress the storyline. Yeah. This has all of that. Yeah. So it is a musical. So, like, could you stage it? Yes. And yeah. it has been staged. Yeah. And you can go and see well, it. Well, then everyone else can fuck off. Thank you. Thank you. That's right. Yeah. So you might think it's not a musical. You're wrong. And I'm going to talk about it today because I love it. I've always loved it. Oh, my God. So I actually have a memory because um, my mum – so it's from the 70s for some context and, like, my mum's big on 70s music because that's, her, like, her heyday. And so we had, a, like, a record player when I was a kid and this was one of the records that we had. So people who know what I'm talking about will will totally be on board. It was, like, a big – like, it was a double record sort of set and it was really thick because it had a book in it because you would, like, read along with it because there's a lot of words. Right. This is a full-on story. It's a proper musical. So we had that and I remember the first time I listened to it, like I sat down with my sister and she like sort of read a lot. We read along with it together and it was not like sitting down and listening to records was not a thing that I did as a kid. It was like we'd listen to music in the car or there'd be music playing in my house but you didn't like sit down and immerse yourself in music ever. It was always just incidental. So this was the first time I remember like sitting down and listening and just being so – enamored with the whole thing and then like straight away the music just captured me in like and it, there's nothing like it like I've never se- I've never listened to anything like War of the Worlds. so straight away you, you like you hear the beautiful narration which I'll talk about later and it just like grabs you and you're fascinated by the story and you love the style of the music oh my god it's just so good yeah so that's why I love War of the Worlds and Shane doesn't like it okay so we have it's like a serious sticking point in our relationship. <laughs> I'm hoping that he'll get through it's it. It's only our marriages that are like this, I hope you realise. Like, what do you mean? We're like musicals that one likes and not the other. It's just like actually a source of tension in well, the relationship. Yeah, because like why? Yeah. Why Shane? Yeah. And can I trust you? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, I think... Well, let me get back. So War of the Worlds began as an album. Yeah. So that's how it started, like a lot of musicals in the 70s actually. It's actually the debut album of Jeff Wayne, who's a British musician, and his father, Jeff Wayne's father, whose name I think is Jerry Wayne, was the original Sky Masterson on West End. Oh, cool. Yeah, I know, crazy. Um, so Jerry Wayne had actually written the book and lyrics for a musical adaptation of A Tale of Two Cities called Two Cities, and Jeff had written the music for that musical when he was 23. So he had a little bit of, like he was already a musician and he's a really great composer but he already had a bit of theatrical experience and adapting a story um two cities was actually quite a successful musical but good luck finding info about it like it's like the recording doesn't exist anymore anyway 
Okay, I'm going to tell you about the plot. So it's based on the incredibly popular 1898, I've written 1998 novel, it's definitely not 1998, (laughs) 1898 novel War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. So the story is in two books, which Jeff Wayne then turned into two discs or two acts. Yeah. Um, The first book of War of the Worlds is called The Coming of the Martians and it follows the invasion of Earth, particularly England is the main, like that's the main setting. Yeah. Horsall Common. Um, by violent and powerful Martians who possess a very powerful heat ray that no human weapon can defeat. The journalist is our main character and our narrator and the story is told through his eyes and his experiences. So it's set like historically in like Victorian era, just so you know. So it's like steampunky, cool setting. The second act is called The Earth Under the Martians and the Martians have basically taken over Earth. They are killing humans and they're harvesting their blood and the earth is being like overrun by the red weed, which is like the plant of Mars. Right. And it's like this sort of living, breathing, awful, but sort of beautiful plant that like is just everywhere. So desolate and desperate, the journalist decides to commit suicide and throw himself in front of a Martian only to find that the Martian is actually dead and all of the Martians are dying of bacteria to which they have no immunity. So like the earth's bacteria or whatever Mm. kills them. Um, The epilogue is then that it's like set in the future, everyone's happy, Martians have been defeated, yay, 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 but then the epilogue happens in the future and it implies that the Martians are attempting another invasion after learning from their mistakes. So the show sort of ends with this like, oh, my God, have the like Martians ominous, come back? Yeah. yeah. Like, a bit like um, the ending of Little Shop. Yeah. So that's the basic plot. A lot more happens but whatever. Background. The, so the original book by H.G. Wells is widely considered one of the greatest science fiction texts of all time and it's certainly like the most commented on. Yeah. Um, it was originally a novel that was serialised in 1897. Wait a second, I said 1898. I must have been wrong. Sorry, my dates must be out because in 1897 it was released um, in Pearson's magazine as a mm. serial and it was also released in Cosmopolitan in the US at the same time. Yeah, right. Which obviously must have been a very different magazine. <laughs> and not like... <laughs> Sex tips for the how to keep your man for the outdoors. Whatever the fuck they yeah. have in those things. Uh, remember Dolly Doctor? Anyway, the best, the best. Learned so much. Interestingly, back to War of the Worlds, it's believed that the book is a commentary on British colonial expansion at the time. So, in fact, H.G. Wells has said that the plot arose from a discussion with his brother about the catastrophic effect of the British on the Aboriginal population of Tasmania. So the whole book is just like an allegory for, like, yeah, colonial expansion. He wondered what would happen if Martians did to the British what the British had done to the Aboriginals. Yeah, wow. Yeah, which is really interesting. That's amazing. I know, right? War of the Worlds was most memorably and famously, I think, brought to life in an incredibly realistic radio broadcast in 1938. So this is what you were talking about, Yeah, so I've listened to this. Yeah. Yeah. So the story was presented by Orson Welles and it was broadcast live at 8 p.m. on Halloween in 1938 and it allegedly caused panic in its listeners who thought that the broadcast was news and not fiction just because of the way that it was, like, made. It was made to be, like, breaking news and then, like, it was read out loud. Interestingly... This hysteria is disputed and it's definitely like an urban myth now I think that this happened and that like there was mass panic but apparently the radio station that played the program didn't really have many listeners. Okay, right. there could have been that much panic, you know what I mean? And it might be one of those things like the bystander effect kind of thing where it's like people, people reported on a thing that actually wasn't real and then that 
became yeah and then everyone thought that like, they'd experienced exactly that. Yeah. yeah well i mean something must have happened because the day after orson wells like issued an apology mm. so there must have been some people who were panicked or was that part of the i wonder mm, like I wonder. the press kind yeah. of thing was well i don't really know if you know let us know um you know i think i might have even mentioned on here before but like 1984 yeah i didn't really like the play um that i saw on the west end that's then played a Broadway season as well. Yeah. It's like a big part of their kind of marketing is saying how people had had to like leave the theatre. It was so intense and like people had like vomited and uh, fainted and all this sort it of was thing. All just bullshit. Well, I mean, maybe it's true, but I didn't find it particularly confronting like yeah. that. But I wonder if that's not just like titillizing, you yeah. know? It's interesting, actually. This is such a side Titillating. Titillizing. Um, I saw like an advertising campaign for Gossip Girl back in the day when it first came out, yeah. which was just like covered in slogans of like bad reviews that it got. Oh. So, so like it would be the poster of Gossip Girl and it said things like disgusting or yeah. like total trash, but it sort of made it look like yeah. it was talking about the characters. Anyway. It's clever. It's clever. Yeah. And maybe that's what happened. But, yeah, I don't think it was the sort of mass hysteria that we like to talk yeah. about now had happened. Anyway, um, Interestingly, another thing that happened because of the book, the scientist Robert Goddard was so inspired by the book that he eventually went on to develop the liquid-fueled rocket and the multi-stage rocket that would eventuate in the Apollo 11 moonal landing. Wow. Right? That's cool. So Jeff Wayne. Jeff Wayne originally envisioned a rock opera. And that's really what he came up with. Yeah. So he collaborated with his father's wife at the time who wrote a script for an adaptation while he wrote the music. He still very much like asserts that it is a rock opera. I tend to agree. It features all the elements of a rock opera because it's got leitmotif. It's got like that overarching story. It's got like repeated musical phrases. Mm. So, yes, I think that is true, although perhaps it's not necessarily rock, the genre. Is it an opera? No. Like is it? It's not through song. No, it's not through. It's not through song. It's a rock musical. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Well, because yeah. the the character of the of the journalist is the narrator, and he doesn't sing. He literally narrates. Yeah. So he speaks to music. Like there's always underscoring because right. it's an album. Yeah. So tough one. Uh, one thing that was discovered very early on is that the character of the journalist was the key to the piece, um, because there's a couple of things that differ in the book, like the some of the characters have like been highlighted and some of them have been taken away in the album as happens in adaptations. But yeah, so the journalist becomes a central character and we see all the action through his eyes and straight away Jeff Wayne knew that he wanted Richard Burton to voice the character. So Richard Burton is the narrator, okay, which is really cool. So the album was recorded and launched in 1978 by CBS records and it was an instant hit. Like straight away. There'd been nothing like it and I think nothing really since like it. Mm. It was a musical that had never been seen on stage, um, which at the time was not that uncommon because of concept albums. It starred rock stars who sang and took part in this Victorian science fiction drama. Like it's really quite groundbreaking in yeah. that way. Um, so the album is a 90-minute concept album. It defies genre, I reckon. It fuses rock, classical orchestration, disco, and that narration from Richard Burton. So it's like pretty fucking weird mix to be fair the original cast included david essex as the artillery man that's right yeah. so we know him as the original che from evita yeah it also featured julie covington as beth and she was like the original evita in the concept album yeah um she recorded don't cry for me argentina and then she turned down the role on west, on the west end oh. in the original production and that's how elaine page got the role okay i think you think you mentioned that maybe yeah, I briefly think, i think i did because she turned it down because she didn't she didn't like the character of 
Eva. Like she didn't right. want to play Eva Peron. So mm. interesting. So as well as that, Justin Hayward from the Moody Blues and Phil Linnett from Thin Lizzy were in the cast. The Black Smoke Band and the Ula Dub Ula, I think I'm saying that right, Ula Dub Ula String Orchestra provided all the music. Mm. So the album was one of the first to be recorded on 48 tracks. <laughs> it was using two synchronised 24-track recorders and I found this really cool fact which musical nerds will love um, – because obviously it was recorded on like it's an it was recorded on actual um, vinyl. The the mixer in the recording studio only had sixteen inputs. Oh, so it was like recorded using sixteen inputs. But like we're talking about a huge cast, like a massive orchestra plus yeah. like band. Huge, like I don't know, I don't know how they did that. Anyway, the song from the show Forever Autumn was a UK top five single and the album spent 290 weeks in the UK charts. Wow. It was in the top ten in 22 countries and it reached number one in 11 countries. It was a smash. Why isn't it bigger now? I think it is, Ruth. But it doesn't get done. No. I don't, like that's what I mean. Well, I actually think it's because it's like quite, it's quite difficult. Yeah. Musically it's quite demanding. Like it's full on. And you need a big band. Yeah, I just it just feels like the sort of thing it's like you could do Superstar again in concert like they do or you could do something like this. It's so true. Like it's not bigger than Superstar. No. It's probably easier to stage than Superstar. Hmm. I wonder if like maybe the rights are not readily available. Yeah. Because well, Jeff, and I'll get into that, but Jeff Wayne is still heavily involved in like a lot of the touring oh, of really? now. So maybe it's like not, it's not like readily available to but, license. But like it hasn't been on. Probably in our, certainly not in our adult lives in Australia. It has, in fact. In, in our adult lives? Yes. Professionally? Yes. I'm going to talk about that. Okay. I think maybe it's just not on your radar. I'm like, my radar's pretty big. <laughs> well, I've just proved you wrong. Yeah. Uh, there's also a Spanish language version that was released in 1978 and a German version in 1980. It's since been remixed and re-released dozens of times. Yeah. Like, there's just so many versions of it. So... The album inspired a 1984 video game and a 1998 computer game and a 1999 PlayStation game, <laughs> which is cool. So then we get into the live tours. So a live tour based on the album began in the UK in April 2006 with Jeff Wayne conducting and, like, organising yeah. it. A virtual Richard Burton was used. So in the original, like, 2006 tour, they they sort of, like, really early sort of holographic stuff. Yeah. That has over the years has really improved in quality, but they wanted to use Richard Burton's voice. So they like, they got, you know, a, a recreation of his face. And I think they had actors like who had similar like jaw structures yeah. actually like mime so that then they could make it look like he was talking yeah. on the screen. So um, I'm pretty sure that's what I have a DVD of. Yeah. I think the one you would have, there's one recorded from Wembley Arena, I think. Yeah. And that's probably the one you've got. Um, so the characters, yeah, so this is like this live tour. They had a virtual Richard Burton and the ca- all of the cast like wore costumes and there were staging elements. Like it's a proper musical. Like they had, you know, effects and a set. Usually the band is on stage because they're so important. Yeah. But that's not rare for a musical. So the live show then toured Australia and New Zealand in 2007 starring Shannon Knoll as Parson Nathaniel. Okay. Rachel Beck as Beth and Michael Falzon as the artillery man. We're still pretty young in 2007. I would say that we were adults. <laughs> you were definitely an adult. I was 20. So was I. Um, I remember that tour. Do you? I tried to get a ticket. 
Oh. Yeah, I didn't get a ticket. Very sad. So these tours continue on for a number of years and were really successful and theatrical. I've um, linked to a trailer for one of them. It's really awesome. And the two-disc DVD release of the 2006 Wembley Arena Tour yeah. is what you can buy and watch. So yeah. that's what you would have for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, then in 2012, The New Generation was released. So it's called Jeff Wayne's musical version of War of the Worlds, The New Generation. Okay. <laughs> this wasn't even more like musically version than the original because Jeff Wayne wanted to like explore character journey more and enhance like the theatricality of the recordings, add more sort of like sound effects of things that were happening in the story and like explore character. So for the first time a new journalist was recorded. So this whole time beforehand every recording had used Richard Richard Burton. Yeah, Yeah. Liam Neeson was the journalist, yeah, which is really cool. Uh, Joss Stone played Beth. Oh. Ricky Wilson from the Kaiser Chiefs played the artillery man. Joss Stone's got a great voice. Oh, she's so good. Yeah. Yeah, so she's awesome. There was a stage show version of this production that ran from February in 2016 until April in 2016 at the Dominion Theatre on the West End, and that was quite successful. Oh, I was living there then. What the hell were you doing? Why didn't I see it? Why didn't you see it? I actually don't think this is on your radar. I mean it. Oh, my God. So then a five-hour audible original production musical drama was released in 2018. This absolute delight of five hours of musical goodness (laughs) starred Michael Sheen as the journalist who loved. How was it five hours, though? Well, so... (laughs) <clears throat> Let me get to that. Okay. So Michael Sheen plays the journalist, Taryn Edgerton plays the artillery man, and they basically were like, let's let's merge the book and the musical. Right. Jeff Wayne's going to write more musical stuff, yep. so he adds more stuff and it becomes like it's like a, a hybrid between a musical and, a, and, and like an, an audio book. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really cool. In 2019, an immersive theatrical experience opened at the old London Metal Exchange site. So this features VR, involves the audience, like in, they're actually battling the Martians along to the Jeff Wayne score in this like immersive theatrical experience. <laughs> there's also like a red weed bar, there's a steampunk restaurant and this giant like fighting machine when you get in there. It's like a two and a half hour experience. Yeah. It's like completely immersive. It's really cool. It won a whole bunch of awards as like best immersive theatrical experience and all yeah, this stuff. Right. Yeah, So some fun facts. The song Forever Autumn, which – I think most people would know it was a really famous song at the time. So it began as a jingle for a Lego commercial that was really (laughs) popular at the time. The song from that jingle, from that commercial, was turned into like a solo that became a huge hit in Japan. It was pretty popular in the UK as well. So it was written before War of the Worlds was written and released and it was added in after it had already become like a solo hit. Right. So Jeff Wayne didn't want that to happen. He wanted to write an original song for that part of the show but Forever Autumn actually just fits perfectly in the show and when you listen to it if you don't already know that this song existed you would think that this song was written for the show it's like maybe this time in Cabaret like it's the same sort of thing Um, another fun fact it took Jeff Wayne nine months of asking the HG Wells estate for permission before they finally agreed to let him make it like they were just like nut yeah Um, but I'm glad they finally capitulated yeah so some gateway songs. This is the hardest one I've ever had to do. Okay. Because this is, there are no standalone songs. Okay. Like it's a, it's, and it's highly instrumental. Yeah. But I found them. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, I think you should stop being dumb and listen to the whole thing. Okay. And just sit down and do it. That's directed at you, Ruth Tiffin. Yeah. I, 
I got, I got that <laughs> from her face. If you have to have some gateway songs, start with the song Brave New World. It's my personal favourite song of the whole show and one of my favourite songs of all time. It's sung by the Artillery Man, which is a dream role of mine. Okay. It's such a good song. It's is quite the Artillery a Man always played by a man? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So we would be doing some. We would have to be doing some. Well, I mean, this is the Victorian era. Yeah. I suppose women weren't artillery men then. No, but. We We're have still to making you that character. That's right. And yeah. it's very important that I do play that character. Okay. I don't want to play any other character. Would you play it as a man? Uh, sure, yeah. Okay, cool. I, I have no preference. I just want to play this character. Excellent. Once you hear this song, you'll understand why okay. it's so good. It's a banger. Um, next, I think you should listen to the song Thunder Child. It is snappy. It has all the bits that you would expect and it is a really good snapshot of the style of music of the rest of the show. Yeah. And it's like there's a lot of there's a lot of action happening in that song. As a bonus, I've popped in the song Spirit of Man from the new recording featuring Joss Stone because she does these really cool riffs in it. That's okay. really awesome. So the other two from the original? Yes. Yeah. And the bit that I think everyone will at least have heard of is in that song The Spirit of Man where she's like, no, Nathaniel. Do you know that? Oh, no, no. Nathaniel. I do oh not my know God, that. Ruth. I'm sorry. You are breaking my heart. Like, actually. I'm sorry. Well, this fix is going to be a real issue between us, isn't it? I can already feel the tension and the distance. Yeah. That's War of the Worlds. Amazing. It's a short one. So then, which you normally listen to the original? Is that what you listen to yeah. when you go back now? I listen to the original because. As much as I adore Liam Neeson, I love Richard Burton and yeah. I'm quite attached to the orchestrations in the original. Yeah. The new one though is so cool because it's got Liam Neeson but also like they've used different, slightly different instruments. So it's just like a bit more rhythmic. It's yeah. got a bit more like maybe electronic music in it than the original does. Yeah. So the new recording is really cool. And then on top of that there are like a bunch of remix albums that have like like actual like house remixes or whatever. And I assume the, the Audible one isn't on, like, Spotify or no, anything. No, no. So that one's hard to come by. You probably have to buy, like, yeah. a subscription. So what I've linked to is the original with Richard Burton, the new generation with Liam Neeson, the remixes, and there's also an album which might be a good gateway, which is, like, it was edited for radio. So there's, like, okay. a radio edits album of, like, short versions. Okay. Yeah, and... I was almost going to say as a gateway you should listen to the opening song. It's called The Eve of War because it, it's the opening, like there's a little monologue by the narrator at the beginning yeah, which just sets up the story and then it's got this really like heavily dramatic instrumental section. Yeah. But I just don't think, I think you would expect singing as a gateway. Yeah. And there's no singing in that opening. Yeah. So. Although I had hello for Drowsy Chaperone. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah, well, feel free to listen to that, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to mention it on a mixtape sometime so which- soon. A version do you think I should listen to? I think you should listen to the original. The original. Yeah, I okay. think the, the like the techno elements of the new version will freak you out if you don't know it. Okay. Yeah. You like need to know it first. I think so. Okay. Yeah. I promise you I'll listen to it. I don't believe you. Really? Yeah. I wouldn't lie to you. Is that true? Yeah. <gasps> Open up your eyes, can't you see? <laughs> what I like to you, baby. Um Awesome. Do you want to talk about musical? Yeah, but I just want to let you know that I will listen to it. Okay, I believe you. Yeah. I'll check in with you I tomorrow. I'm pretty shook that it was on in London when I was living there and I didn't see it. Me too. Like I saw a lot of things in that time. What hurts me the most is that you didn't see one of my favourite things ever. I don't think I knew that it was one of your favourite things at the time. I think you 
Why not? I, like, I, I, don't feel like, I don't feel like when we were teenagers this is a show that you went on to me about. Oh, yeah. For example, there's none of these songs on any of the mix CDs you ever made me. You can't put them in a mix CD. Well, now, now I know this, but, you know, like I made mm. sure I listened to everything else you made me listen to. <laughs> you poor thing. I know. I just locked her in a room. Yeah. With a walkman. It was mostly Secret Garden. <laughs> what is that? I feel like there was a lot of Secret Garden. I love Secret Garden. Yeah. I'm eating a word that's original. Oh, Andrew will love that on the mic. He'll be really <laughs> into that, like, ASMR. <laughs> um, okay. Do you want to talk about a musical I rip? do. And this is a big one. I think I need a chamber pot because I'm busting. But we're going to be here for, like, seven we hours, are. aren't we? Okay, all right, I'm buckling. Settle in. <laughs> Piss yourself if you have to. <laughs> okay, so this is definitely the biggest musical that I have attempted to do on this show, I reckon. In terms of the depth of research. Bigger I, than Les Mis? It kind of felt that way. Shit. I, I can't tell you why. It just like felt like there were so many avenues I could go down of research. Hmm. And obviously it's an it's an older show, so there's a, just a lot more time has gone past. It just it feels like there's so much we could talk about with this show, right? Okay. So, West Side Story. Whoa. That's the show. Um, wait, wait, wait. Yay. I love this show for all the same reasons like the world loves this show. Like it's just sort of objectively an incredible show. Um, And I would say it's probably high on my list of – certainly I think it's one of the best scores ever written in musical theatre for the musical theatre. Correct. Um, I don't know about like best musical all round because I do think that there are things that have dated about it in certain ways, but the score I think completely holds up and I, and I do think it's one of the best scores. It's glorious. The score is glorious and the dancing is incredible. I love dancing in a musical. Yes. But like proper dancing. Yes. That's what this is. Yes. So of course, based on William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So book, Let's just listen to this team. Ready. Book by Arthur Lawrence, music by Leonard Bernstein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, directed and choreographed by Jerome Robbins and produced by Hal Prince. Like, fuck off, right? What a fucking team. Right? So I just that wanna... pi- You know that picture of like... Yes. It's of all them. of them plus Hal Prince's producing partner, Robert Griffith. Mm-hmm. I might try and find that picture and post it mm. when we post the episode. So I want to give some context just as to where this team is up to in their careers at this point um, that the show is getting written. So Bernstein and Robbins were already kind of fairly established. They'd previously worked together on On the Town, which was a big hit. On the Town. Yeah. Um, Hal Prince... It's fairly early in his career, but he had produced the pajama game. So, like, that had been successful, but it's still, I mean, considering the career breadth of Hal Prince, it's quite early. Um, Arthur Lawrence had had several Broadway plays at this stage, but this marked his first ever Broadway musical. How old would Hal Prince have been? Uh, So he died, what, last year or this year? No, last year. Last year and he was, what? 90. I think he was 90-something. But he's not that much older than Sondheim. Yeah, he's and not. And Sondheim was in his 20s for this, wasn't he? Yeah. So yeah. he would have been yeah, young. Yeah, he would have definitely been in his 20s as well. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Who achieves anything in their 20s? It's ridiculous. Not me. Um. So, yeah, so this was Arthur Lawrence had, had some Broadway plays, but this marked his first Broadway musical. Mm. And, and of course, it marks Stephen Sondheim's Broadway debut. Hey! Um, and he was 25 at the time they started fuck, writing the show. Fuck off. Yeah. Which was a couple of years before. Okay, so a synopsis. So we have two warring rival teenage gangs, the Jets who are white and the Sharks who are Puerto Rican. 
And they're both attending a neighborhood dance and planning to organize a rumble. So like a fight between the two gangs whilst at the dance, Tony, who is a jet and Maria, who is the sister of Bernardo, who is the head of the sharks meet briefly and fall in love. That's all you need. You just need a brief meeting. (laughs) Despite their different backgrounds, they're determined to be together and plan to marry. And Tony agrees to attend the rumble only to try and stop it. Like promises Maria, he's going to try and stop it to bring peace between the gangs. But a knife fight breaks out when he goes to do so between Bernardo and Riff, who is Tony's best friend. Riff is fatally stabbed by Bernardo and Tony in turn kills Bernardo in a fit of rage. Um, The Jets are then incorrectly told that Maria has been killed by Chino, who is the... um, the shark that she's supposed to be in an arranged marriage with. And upon hearing the news, Tony wanders the streets yelling for Chino to kill him as well. Just as Maria arrives and they see that they're both alive, that they're each alive, Chino shoots Tony and Maria holds him in the street whilst he dies in her arms. After an, Im- <laughs> I know, it's so sad. After an impassioned speech by Maria, the two gangs carry Tony's body off together in a procession, procession showing that the feud is over. Like well, it is, that's nice. It is a bummer of a show, though. Man. Both acts end with deaths. Like the first act ends with Riff and Bernardo on stage dead, and the second act ends after they've carried Tony's body. Body off stage. It's a bit much, isn't it, Shakespeare? It's like a lot. it's a bit much. Of course, and of course, in Romeo and Juliet, Juliet dies as well. Mm. But in this, um, Maria does not die. So after tryouts in Washington DC and Philadelphia, beginning in August 1957, the original Broadway production opened at the Winter Garden Theatre on September 26th, 1957. The production closed on June 27th, 1959, after mm. 732 performances. So whilst a lot it's less for the than 50s, I thought it, would be. it is less than I thought as well. Mm. Like it's a couple it is of a years. lot for then, obviously. Yeah. The original Broadway cast was nominated for six Tony Awards at the 1958 Tonys and won only two. Oh, yeah, for best co- best choreography um, and best scenic design, and that's it. So best score didn't even win. Well, okay, so there wasn't a best score oh. back then. That's well, the funny thing. Like, they, like yeah, I was sort of, I was like, oh my god. It's crazy how few it won. But then I looked at actually the amount of awards that were given out and there wasn't that many back then. What won Best Musical that year? So it lost the Best Musical Tony to The Music Man. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well, that's fair. (laughs) But it is crazy that it only won two. I think that's insane. So the production's national tour was launched on July 1st, 1959 and played various cities in the US before returning to the Winter Garden Theatre and playing another 249 performances there before closing in December 1960. Wow. So I think that to happen a bit yeah but it just doesn't yeah like go out into a comeback into new york but like to play another 249 performances like that's a fair bit it is a fair bit um it opened at her majesty's theater in london in the west end on december 12th 1958 and ran until june 1961 that is the literal day my dad was born really yeah Um, Ran until June 1961 with a total of 1,039 performances. It's weird to me that it was a Her Majesty's because that's the theatre that Phantom's been at for 34 years in London. To imagine that something else was there. Yeah, something else has been there. It's just kind of strange. To imagine that Phantom is a thing. Yeah. Strange. Um, There has been – there has since been three West End revivals and five revivals in New York. Whoa. Um, A couple of which I will touch on. Yeah. You'll touch them? I'll touch them. 
Um, the 2009 Broadway revival. So like there was one in 98, like there's been a few over the yeah. years, right? Uh, I'm going to skip a few. Um, but the one in 2009 was nominated for four Tonys and won one for best featured actress for Karen, Karen Olivo as Anita. Oh, she's awesome. Yeah. Um, the reason I want to mention this production is that it wove Spanish lyrics and dialogue into the English libretto. Oh, nice. And the Spanish translations were done by none other than Lin-Manuel Miranda. From probably with permission from his beloved Stephen Sondheim. They did them together. Oh. They worked on them together. I just want one picture of that. Right. Oh, my God. They would, that would exist. I'll send it to, to you. To be a fly on that wall. <laughs> um, although apparently audiences didn't actually respond very well to the Spanish Is that because people are racist bitches? Yeah, and I think it's just like, oh, well, this isn't West Side Story. Oh, like, fuck off. Yeah. And so eight months into the run, several lyrics were changed back to English. <gasps> yeah. Pandering. But if you listen to the cast recording, there, a lot of them are still on there, which is quite That's nice to bullshit. listen to. Yeah. Um, that revival actually ran longer than the original and was financially successful. Hey, was yeah. the original not financially successful? It was, but like, but not like revivals aren't all the time, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. it's just not that common. Um, there was a revival that was playing on Broadway. Um, when it shut? When COVID hit in March. Um, it had started, it, no, it hasn't, it hasn't closed down, it technically will reopen yeah. when Broadway reopens. I meant when Broadway closed. Yes. Yeah. Um, it had started previews in December last year and officially opened on February 20th, 2020. It's at the Broadway Theatre. However, it won't be considered eligible for the 2020 Tonys that are going to be held virtually because the cutoff date for Tony voters has been decided to be February 19th, oh, one day before they open. That's so shit. So that's that whole thing of like enough Tony voters have to have been able to see the show. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, it just was determined too, too late they in the season. Um, yeah, yeah and not enough people. people saw it. So it's a bit shit because it means like if they do then reopen um, – like Tony voters are gonna say say see it for what the t- fucking twenty twenty two Tonys, you yeah, know what I Jesus. mean? Like it's yeah. a long way off. Um, so that revival is directed by Ivo Van Hove, who is an avant garde Belgian director who's mostly done plays. So actually, I sort of worked out. I've seen quite a few of his shows, and I didn't oh, cool. sort of realize, but I've seen his View from the Bridge, The Crucible, and Network, which were all on Broadway in the last sort of five years or so. Nice, and they were all excellent. This Did you March- say the Network. Network, you know the film? Yeah. Um, so they did – it was on a, in London, I think at the National, yes. with Brian Cranston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it transferred to Broadway. It and it's like what he does a lot, and I'll talk about it for this revival, is mix kind of like live screens and what's happening on stage. Yeah. So like on so Network there was a whole almost. scene that happened out the on the – footpath of the theatre that we were watching projected that then they then moved were filmed as they walked through the theatre and onto the stage yeah nice like some really cool stuff yeah um and yeah brian cranston was incredible um so i loved actually all three of those um adaptations that i saw um and but this is his first broadway musical nice um this is the first ever production to not have to use Jerome Robbins choreography. So that's the choreography is like it's um, part of the show. Yeah, and you know how like there's a lot of these musicals where you have to do it. Yeah, um, like some of the Fosse ones. I wonder and, why. So why they can do it? Yeah, they made an they made an agreement. Wow. Yeah, and I don't know if it's that now like everyone's dead. Like I don't know if that's part of it. Stephen's not. No, he's not. 
Um, he's a but nice he is guy. very, and he is very open to things being changed. I know. That's my favorite thing about yes, him. Yes, me too. Because you think he's going to be a precious diva. Not at all. And he's all. not. He's the opposite. He's so open to it. Oh, I love him. Um, so it's set in the modern era, and the with the sharks on the jets filming the action on their phones, which is then projected onto a giant screen behind them. Mm-hmm. Its runtime is an hour and forty five minutes with no interval, and it cut. A lo- wow. So it's like a, normally That's like a three-hour show. Like it yeah. cut a lot of stuff, including I Feel Pretty and the, and the Dream Ballet. Yeah, good. You say that, but there's actually a lot of issues with cutting something like I Feel Pretty. Partly because it's like one of the only kind of like hopeful, fe- like, like moments of levity and also like hopefulness and especially hopefulness from like the women in the show. Mm. Like they very much focus the, on the show men. on the men and it, makes it all about them and the violence and not a lot to do with kind of the love and the hope. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah. So it also made both gangs multiracial. Oh, cool. So. So what was the main issue they were warring over then? Exactly. So I'm, instead of like commenting on it myself, I'm going to read this quote from a theatre director named Shell Williams, who I think sums this up the best. Shell Williams. She is the one from Aida, right? She's doing the Aida revival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's a very specific story about white people making Puerto Ricans other. Mm. The story changes considerably when you make it brown on brown. You put all brown people on stage to show danger and you took the whiteness out of a story that is about a group of people saying, this is America and you don't belong here. Um, So that was her quote. So I'm going to link to an article by um, Deep Tran, who's a great writer that's called What Happens to West Side Story When You Remove Race. Mm. Um, And I could just quote the entire article here. So instead I'm going to link it and I would encourage people to read it. Um, But, yeah, it's kind of like. You you cannot take the central issue. That's right. That is still relevant out of a musical. Yeah. Yeah. The musical's about racism. Exactly. You can't take racism out of it. And I think, and so like some, there's some really great comments in that article. And I read quite a few articles about this topic, but part of the issue is that um, when we, when we try to make it, they sort of like, they're sort of saying like, it's kind of like the all lives matter approach to theater. Like we're trying to make it about everyone, but in doing so kind of miss the issue at hand. Do you know what I mean? That's shit. Yeah. And cause it's apparently like I've heard from people who have seen the show that it's not even like there's a lot of say costuming decisions that divide the jets and the sharks. So like when you do things like having fight scenes, it's not even clear who's fighting. If you know what I mean? Yeah, right. So I think there's a few issues there. Mm. Um, the other troubling thing about this production that caused a lot of controversy is the casting of Amar Ramasar as Bernardo, a performer who was previously fired from the New York City Ballet, ballet for sharing nude photos of other female ballerinas. Oh, fuck. Um, he's still in the show. There's, there's, been, there's been quite a few protests and stuff. He's still in the show and they even changed the bows at the end from single bows to a full company bow because people were booing him when he mm. came out. Um, so, like, yeah. There's lots of things in that production that Interesting. are really I, – I I would love to see it. It's I remember it started previews like the day after my last trip to New York at the end of last year yeah. finished, so it was a shame I couldn't see it. But I've heard – not mixed things, but people are saying there's some like genius stuff in there and then the most stupid – like stuff that you would never do. Yeah. And I think that that is because what this um, Ivo Van Hove does is take these revivals, if you will, of plays and things and really turn them on their heads and, 
you know, mm. like approach them from these other angles. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Like it's that thing of like risking big, right? Yeah. You know, like nothing's ever a small risk with what he does. Yeah. And I'm not sure that it all works in this case, to be honest. Mm. Um, I also want to mention that last year in 2019, there were two professional productions in Australia um, at one point running concurrently, which was just kind of unheard of in this country. Um, so there was the Hand Opera on Sydney Harbour. So um, for those who don't know, uh, there's a spot, uh, Mrs Macquarie's chair, where you can kind of look out at Sydney Harbour and there's the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House in the background. And every year they stage an opera on a stage that's in the harbour and you sort of sit on the foreshore watching the opera and that's your backdrop, which is lovely. So they did it there. Plus um, a traditional production held at the Sydney Opera House and the Arts Centre Melbourne, Mm. and they were both co-produced by Opera Australia. Um, In the industry, we called them inside story and outside story, (laughs) um, which I thought was cute. That's cool. Um, I saw both productions and um, particularly inside story, I loved how young the cast was like they really cast like actual teenagers and and they were also incredible dance. Like it was some of the – best dancing I've seen on stage maybe ever. Um, And I also loved hearing the score with a full orchestra because, of course, when we see like a touring commercial musical, they often can't afford to have like a full symphony orchestra play with it. So it was lovely to hear just that glorious score, as I mentioned. Um, Then we have the two films. So the original film was released in 1961 and was the highest grossing film of that year. Mm. Um, the film was incredibly successful and I'm sure is a big contributor as to why the musical is still so successful. Yeah. Like especially when we think of like it didn't actually have that many performances. It's a great film. Yeah. Um, it was nominated for 11 Oscars and won 10, Jeez. which still holds the record for the most Oscars won by a movie musical. So wait, you said it was the highest grossing film of that year. Yeah. That was the year of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Elvis Presley's Blue Hawaii. Wow. Like big films. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, There are, of course, some issues with the sort of racial casting of it. Like Rita Moreno as Anita is the only Latinx. I know everyone else is just And uh, and basically everyone is, yes, in brown face, essentially. Terrible. Including Rita Moreno. Like they also made her like tan it up. Um, And everyone else in it is white. Was Cheetah Rivera the original Anita on Broadway? She was. And apparently, like, there's not a lot of information as to maybe why she wasn't considered yeah. for the for the film. I think it was just like we've had this conversation a million times. Like they just didn't put the Broadway cast in there a so lot of the weird. time. Yeah. Um and Marina Moreno won the Oscar, I'm pretty sure. She did. Yeah. I mean she was phenomenal. Yes, she's in, she's probably the best thing in the film. She is. Um most of the vocals were dubbed as well, which was of course customary back then. Yeah. And Marnie Nixon was uncredited despite doing all of Maria's singing for Natalie Wood and even like some moments of Anita's singing, like even some of Marina Moreno's. Marnie Nixon also did um I think she was Eliza Doolittle yeah. in My Fair Lady and yeah, she, she was did also, a whole bunch of them. I think she was also Anna in, yep, in King the and King I. And I. Yeah. Um, and she was due to receive no royalties from the film soundtrack. Like she was uncredited. Due to receive no royalties from the film tra- soundtrack and so Bernstein offered some of his like royalties to her and after that they agreed to give her some. But only once he'd done that. Fucking Ridiculous. Um, when the soundtrack of the film was released it spent 54 weeks at number one. 
which according to some records makes it the longest number one run of any album in history. The reason there's some consternation is because at the time it was on like a stereo chart when a lot of mono albums were still being released. So it meant that it kind of dominated a chart that it might not have otherwise dominated kind of thing. But if you just look at that on the basis of it, it is like the longest number one run of all time. That's amazing. And, of course, there is an upcoming film. Um, that was due to be released in two thousand, like December this year. I didn't year. know that. T- Steven Spielberg. I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. That's no. So, um, we- oh, I'm surprised it hasn't even come up on the podcast. Like Ariana DeBose, who plays the bullet, she's playing Anita. Oh, yeah. I and think is we it Ansel Elgort is um, is Tony and oh. a girl called Rachel Ziegler, who's mostly um, like a YouTube person, but she's very talented. Oh. Is Maria. Um, and the screenplay is by Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so that was due to be released in December 2020, but has been pushed back a full year to December 2021, sadly. That is sad. Um, so a whole bunch of facts and things to talk about. Excellent. <laughs> so the show was originally called East Side Story when it was <laughs> conceived. Um, in 1947, Jerome Robbins approached Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence about collaborating on a contemporary musical adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. It was going to be based on the Lower East Side and focus on a relationship between an Irish Catholic and a Jewish family. <laughs> um and then I think I think they shelved it for a few years and then basically they were like there was all this news about teenage gangs kind of thing and that's wow. when they decided to do it that way instead. That's cool. Um, we've discussed, I think, this a few times, but Comden and Green were the team's original choice to write the lyrics, but they opted to do Peter Pan instead. And Sondheim was then approached, but he was initially hesitant as he didn't want to just write lyrics. Yeah, he was sick of that. Um, and, well, he hadn't done it yet, yeah. but he just he was like, no, I'm a composer. Yeah. Um, and this is the one that Oscar Hammerstein was like, do it. He, he was like, this will be great experience. Yeah. Like, look at this team basically. Yeah. And so, yes, that was the reason he said yes. Um, Leonard Bernstein was writing Candide and West Side at the same time. <laughs> so for example, One Hand, One Heart was actually originally intended for Candide oh, cool. and the music from, for G Officer Krupke was pulled from the Venice scene in Candide. That is cool. There's a bit of that going on. Like stuff that. that was written for one made it into the other. Um, it was actually how Prince, who was sort of the reason the original production got up. So, um, there was no producer in town wanted to touch it. They all thought it was sort of too depressing. Yeah. And the original producer, lead producer, Cheryl Crawford pulled out like quite, you know, close to the, when it was due to go out of town. So Sondheim called his friend Hal Prince and, um, even after like Hal asked his mentor, George Abbott, um, should he do it? And he was like, no, I don't think you should. But then he listened to the score and was like, I'm going to do it, basically. That's cool. Um, Ironically, Sondheim had wanted Hal and his partner, Robert Griffith, to produce the show two years prior, like when it was all kicking off. Mm. But they were considered too inexperienced at the time. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, so, but they got there in the end. Um, Originally, Sondheim was listed as co-lyricist with Bernstein. But Bernstein decided to remove his own credit after it was clear how much of a contribution Sondheim was making. From all reports, like, Leonard Bernstein actually seems to be a pretty stand-up guy. Clearly. Like, just, yeah, awesome. Um, and there was also many rumours that Sondheim wrote parts of the score whilst Bert Bernstein was working on Candide, but apparently that's not really that true. Yeah. And the only thing he wrote music-wise was the main strain of the chorus in Something's Coming. Yeah, but that's it. That's um, cool to know, actually. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
So there's some other cool lyrics. I mean, like, so of course I went back to my Sondheim finishing the hat book. And, of course and you did. So I've got a lot of cool lyric facts. Um, when Sondheim was writing the lyrics to Maria, he didn't really know what to write as a love song because they'd literally just met. So, like, yeah. what do you, what can he sing about? And so it was just, just that's all he knew. He knew her over. name. So yeah. he's going to sing about how beautiful her name is, basically. Aww. Yeah. So I love that. I thought that was beautiful. Because I actually think Maria is one of the most beautiful love songs. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Um, there was lots of turmoil between the creative geniuses of this production team to the point where like by opening night out of town, like none of them were speaking to Jerome Robbins. Like, yeah. you know, however, Sondheim, Sondheim has sort of said that he actually didn't have that many issues with Jerome Robbins and the few that he did have um, weren't that big of a deal in comparison. Yeah, right. But he told the story of how it was a big lesson he learned after he wrote Maria, it was like, um, Bernstein was out of town, so he was the one who presented it to to Robbins. Yeah. And basically, like, Jerry just kept demanding, like, what is the character doing? No, what are they doing? Like, what are they doing at this time? And would Sondheim be like, that's your job? Well, but ever since, like, Sondheim literally was like, ever since I've always had somewhat in mind, like, what is happening on stage. Oh, yeah, cool. So that he goes, oftentimes a director will completely throw that idea out, but if they are ever like, well, what am I supposed to do with this song? He can be like, well, here's how I've imagined it. He's so emotionally yeah, mature. Right? And he's just like, and that so was a, he said that was a massive lesson for him because it's like sometimes the director does need to know what's in the songwriter's mind when they so wrote the they song. So they can get a picture. Yeah, exactly. He's such a good human in a way that I would be like, you fucking figure it yeah, out. Yeah, you're the director. <laughs> um, so the lyric at the end of G Officer Krupke was originally supposed to be G Officer Krupke, fuck, fuck you. you yeah. But the producers and Columbia Records balked and wouldn't let them do, do that, partly due to obscenity laws because, like, if they'd had that, the record wouldn't be allowed to be shipped across state lines. Oh, my God. Because of the obscenity laws, <gasps> yeah. Um, so Bernstein instead came up with, you know, G Office Krupke, Krup You. you yeah. And Sondheim actually thinks it's one of the best lyrics in the show. It is. Yeah. Um, if Fuck had have succeeded and made it into the score, it would have been the first use of a serious four-letter letter obscenity in a Broadway musical. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I wonder um, what the actual first was. Yeah. I, I don't know. I tried to find oh, out and I, it wasn't, gonna, like, like easily Googleable. Yeah. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof had been the first in a play in 1955 yeah. Yeah, when the character of Big Daddy says bullshit. Um, sometimes somewhat famously doesn't really like the lyrics for West Side Story. Yeah. Um, Bernstein much preferred sort of somewhat sort of poetic lyrics and sometime, and so sometimes like specifically wrote that way because that's what Bernstein wanted. And sometimes really thinks that those are too witty and sort of on the nose, yeah. like lots of imagery and dreaminess when, you know, like these are New York street kids yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. He feels many of the lyrics sound like the writer and not the character. And an example he often gives is in I Feel Pretty when Maria sings It's Alarming How Charming I Feel. Yeah. Um, yeah, he just he would rather write things that are true to the character. Yeah, nice. Um, sort of thing. But then, like, people love it, so who knows? Yeah, they eat it up. And a lot of the slang, slang in the show is invented because slang ages so quickly. So oh, things nice. like Frabba Jabber and Fracket a Track are all, like, just invented words That's basically cool. like that so that it much. won't won't date itself um the song america was originally intended to be an argument between anita and bernardo to flesh out their relationship ah. but jerry robbins wanted an all-female dance number yeah he um, did in the end the film version has both the men and the women in the number like unlike the stage version so they were able to use the original lyrics that were written for the show 
um, because it has both in it kind of thing. Yeah, that's cool. Um, interestingly, the quintet, like, the you know, the Tonight yeah. Quintet is technically a quartet yes. because Maria and Tony sing the same melodic line. Yes. But it was more about the form of a song, so they've just left it as being called a quintet because, like, yeah. that's what it, it's, it's like it's five it's people. Nice. Yeah. Um, we discussed this in the Fiddler episode, I think, but Jerome Robbins testified before yeah. the House of Un-American Activity. Yeah, we did talk that about that. That was Fiddler, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And he named several Communist Party members who were then blacklisted. Yeah. He did this because he'd been threatened with being outed as a gay man. That's right. Um, so both Bernstein and Lawrence had both previously been blacklisted by the committee, but they kind of decided to put that aside to work on the show with Robbins. However, Lawrence has said that he regrets working with him mm. because it kind of validated his actions. Yeah. Um, and he said that once the show was frozen in Philadelphia, he told Robbins that he thought he was immoral and indecent. Um, however, like... He did go on to immediately work with him straight away on Gypsy. Like Gypsy is like the next show they all do. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, so clearly like not as much as I think he probably because so the whole team were homosexual. Yeah. Um, for West Side Story, so yeah. I guess they probably somewhat understood as well. Yeah, like that's the, right. That being seen as a communist was less of a threat than being seen as gay. Yeah, but he outed all of his friends. Yeah, it's that was the, terrible. Yeah. I know, but I yeah, it's like I guess. He gets it to a certain extent, right? Yeah. Terror. I mean, like, what a fucked the whole thing. It's is. Awful. awful. I mean, just the fact that that situation exists, right? Is shit. Terrible. Like, let's not just blame him. So, I could spend an entire episode talking about like the music of West Side and the use of motif and all these different things. Hmm. Um, but Do I, it. I've actually mentioned a YouTube video before on the YouTube channel Sideways, which um, is a channel that analyzes movie music and he has an excellent video on West Side Story which I will link to again and I could go through basically every point he makes in the video but just just to touch on a, a, a couple of things there are several motifs in the show that are all made up of the same three notes in different forms using tritones yeah um and so there's like one that's like the the whistle at the beginning you know all those things yeah yeah and um it's just that those like um, that's like the danger riff kind yeah. of thing, the danger motif. It's the same, like the Jets then have a similar one in a different format. Yeah. It's also the same one that Tony uses in for Maria. Something's Coming yeah. and Maria but inverted. Yes. So, the, so like, Daddy, yeah. Marie. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so the, all those motifs are the music about the Jets or about Tony and Maria, right? Yes. But then, for example, in the song America and I Feel Pretty, Songs which don't have anything really to do with either of those things. Yeah. We don't have any – those tritones are not used at all. Yeah, because well, they're, like, lighthearted and they're – Exactly. Like, that's not what we're talking about at all and yes. they're just, like, deliberately left out. Yeah. So, um, like, there's more and I could talk for a long time, but, like, watch that video. It's 18 minutes. It's excellent. Yeah, it's really um, well done. And, there's lots, and, of course, like, the score just in general is, I guess, much more classical in a way than other scores – but but not in a way that it's not listenable. Like it's no, just, it's very accessible. It's, so it's just enjoyable. very orchestral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, in a cool way. And there's lots of amazing instrumental numbers in yeah. this show as well. Like dance at the gym is incredible. I think the inclusion of the tritone is actually really clever because it then becomes just interesting to listen to. Yes. Like then you're like, ooh, I agree. I yeah. agree. It goes places you and don't clearly, think it will go. Like Bernstein was just a musical genius. Oh, of course, you know? of course. Um, so West Side Story was also quite a groundbreaking show. 
in the history of musical theatre. So, of course, we've talked about in the Oklahoma episode that that was the first show to really progress story through song and convey, like, serious ideas um, in a musical. But West Side was the first where dance was also a part of the storytelling language. So, like, um, in the opening prologue and in the rumble, it's more like choreographed movement than just a dance sequence. Because before that it had only ever existed in the dream ballet. That's right. And even then the Oklahoma was the first dream ballet, right? right. So, like, even that that was, yeah, like, pretty. So previously, of course, we also had, like, the singing chorus and the dancing chorus, but this was really, like, the dancing was part of the storytelling, which was a big deal. Yeah. and also just like one final talking point, which is that as beautiful and groundbreaking as West Side is in many ways, it is once again like a musical about racism and the lives of people of colour in America that is created and continues to be directed and created just by like white men. Yeah. Like both movies have had white directors, you yeah. know, like every fucking revival. Yeah. It's we're, we're maybe finally at the point where like, actual Puerto Rican people are being cast as some of these characters, but that's about it, you know. It's just not good enough, is it? It's not. It's really not. When will we have a time where, like, white dudes aren't just the only people working in these roles? I don't know, but it's depressing. Um, So lots and lots of recordings available for you to listen to. Yes. Um, I'm going to link to a few of them, but, I mean, there are so many. Tell us. So there is, of course, the original Broadway cast. Yes. Um, Carol Lawrence is Maria. She's great. Everyone's great. The film soundtrack, which, as we said, is mostly not the people you're seeing on screen. But still, you know. I'm going to link to the 2009 Broadway revival, which is that one I mentioned with Karen Olivo as Anita. Um, I'm going to listen to a, one called Songs of West Side Story, which is sort of like a concept album. I think oh, it's yeah. from the 90s. Is it like a best of, like a highlights? No, it's like kind of pop and jazz and rock covers of the song. Oh, cool. But it's quite cool. I like that. Yeah. It's like, you know, like Salt and Pepper do one <laughs> and like different things like that. So yeah. there's some really cool stuff on there. Nice. It's a YouTube link. It doesn't exist on Spotify, unfortunately. I'm also going to link to the 2014 San Francisco Symphony recording. It was like a big concert version they did. Cheyenne Jackson was Tony. <gasps> I love Beautiful Cheyenne Jackson. Cheyenne Jackson. Alexandra Silva, who was in Fiddler, was yeah. Maria. Yeah. And Jessica Vosk, who was Elphaba. Last year, I think, on oh, Broadway, yeah. and she's she got an incredible voice. She's Anita. Yeah, nice. Um, so those are the recordings I'm listening to. So Gateway Songs. Ready. This was a hard one. It okay. is a hard I'm thinking right now. Yeah. Like- so I, I've gone with three. Yeah. Um, tried to keep it to three. So Maria is my first one. Good. As yeah. you say, one of the most beautiful songs sort of ever written. But that's the I Want song, right? Yeah. Well, something. no, Something's Coming is. Oh, Something's Coming. Yeah. Oh, but they're so close together. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is something's coming though. Interesting. Because he kind of has. But he's just. But it's like in Maria, he knows what he wants now. Yes. But yeah, I I see that. Yeah. Um, I've gone for America, which again, such a good song. Such a good song, like iconic. Iconic. I mean, the dancing in it is incredible. The music in it is incredible. So I've gone for America and then I've gone for Somewhere, yep. which is part of the Dream Ballet. I love that song. And is often sung by just a soloist. Often like that's the only bit that they do in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, I think it was in the 2009 Broadway revival, it was a boy soprano, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> that's nice. Yeah. Um, but I've actually included the San Francisco version, I think, for Somewhere. on the For the other two I've done, the 2009 Broadway revival. Yeah. Um, just because of sort of the modern recording. Better recording, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the guy 
who plays Tony has a beautiful voice. I think his name's Matt Kavanagh. He's yeah, got a nice. beautiful voice. But yeah, for somewhere, rather than the boy soprano, I've gone for like it's a female singer. Mm, there's that um, try doing again. Exactly. Da, da, da. Um, because it's it's about Maria and Tony. Yeah. So yeah, tritones are plenty. So yeah, that's West Side Story. Do you know, I think one of my favorite songs from that show is um A Boy Like That. Yes, and I have oh. love. I should actually um have you seen Lynn and Rolla Sparza doing yes, it at Miss Cast? So good. So good. Yeah. That's just such a good a good show. Shane and I watched the movie not that long ago. Oh, really? Because I think it was on like Amazon or whatever and we were just like, shit, West Side Story. And it's so good. Apart from the shitty, shitty whitewashing of the cast, yes. it's such a good the film. The actual film is good. The film's great. Yeah. It really holds up. Yeah. Apart from the racism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, West Side Story. That was good, Rude. Thank you. That was like I did a lot of research. You look like a weight has just been lifted off yeah. your shoulder that you finished that. I normally so like to give some context to everyone when we come in here with like our research. I generally have two pages of research. That's like my normal. I had four this week. That's huge. It's by far the most I've ever had. <laughs> good. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> we deserve it. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. I'm going to go do a wee. That's a good idea. Yeah. And, um... Listen to us on Thursday for the mixtape. Yeah, tune in for the mixtape. And can you please leave us a review, a rating, um, like you, us on all of the If you haven't followed platforms. us on Instagram, please follow us on Instagram. Yeah, Ruth's in charge of it now, so don't worry. It's good. Um, <laughs> it is. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then next Monday is the next full episode. Thanks for joining us. This has been My Favourite Musical. That's right. Bye. Bye. Bye.